Well, good morning. How you doing, church? You're alive. I'm so proud of you doing some dancing. That was pretty good. <laughs> I'm more proud of myself. I'm not good at doing the, the steps, you know, with, with dancing. I'm, not, I'm more of a freestyle, you know. Like, like Soul Train, when they walk down the middle, I would make my thing up, you know, when I would do those things. But when it's uh, orchestrated and you have to do the steps, I get discombobulated. But uh, I, th- I thought I did pretty good, and so did you. Uh, and by the way, gentlemen, uh, this counts. If your wife is always asking you to dance with her and you're always like, oh, don't do that. Just, and she's like, you never dance with me. Say, I did that one time in church, remember? <laughs> All right. Well, my name is Troy. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to have you join us in person and also online. And glad that you're here on our weekend celebrating our friend Jeff. Thanks for being a part of that. Hope you make plans to eat with us afterwards. But, uh, um, you know, I was, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, there are two words that make me suspicious whenever I hear them. Um, the two words are unlimited and unconditional. Right? You hear them, someone says to you, I get a little nervous when someone says, oh, you know what, uh, you'll receive an unlimited supply of, you know, whatever. Or, or you know what, you've got an unconditional money-back guarantee coming back to you. I, I always hear those and I'm like, really? Really? You know, I don't know about that. I, there's got to be a catch. There's got to be a hook somewhere in that. There's no such thing as unlimited and unconditional. But uh, uh, I was thinking about this, that I imagine that some of you have may, may have had the same kind of conversation with God before, where you, you're like, unlimited, uh, unlimited uh, unconditional love? Unconditional love? I don't have to do anything to get your love. Really? Unlimited forgiveness? <laughs> Are you sure? Have you seen what I've done? Have you seen my record? It's, I've got a rap sheet this long. I'm just forgiven, less like that. Um, you know, that sounds too good. That sounds too good to be true. Um, if, if that's you, um, I mean, I'm so glad that you're here to hear what we're going to talk about today. I hope this uh, encourages you. You know, these last couple of months, we've been following Jesus' life story from the moment that he was introduced to the world And we're going to follow it all the way to the moment that he dies for the world in a couple weeks. Um, And we've been making the case, I don't miss this, we've been making the case that Jesus came into the world to introduce something brand new to the world. That he came to introduce something brand new to the world and for the world. He didn't come to extend and add on to the old thing. He didn't come to bring us Judaism 2.0. He came to bring us something completely and totally brand new for the world. Now, we're at the point in the story as we've been doing this where things are about to come to a violent end between Jesus and the religious leaders who want him dead. Um, It's the Passover it's the Passover, um, and, and it's just a few days away. And like every good Jew in Israel, Jesus and his disciples have come to celebrate the Passover in the city of Jerusalem. Now, you may not be, know this and be familiar with this, but the Passover was a holiday that Jews celebrated every year where they remembered their ancestors' freedom from slavery in Egypt. And, uh, and, but this Passover is a little bittersweet for them because... They're not completely free at this point. They are under um, Roman occupation. Rome is controlling everything. 
But in spite of that, um, Jews from all over are flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday in the city. Now, John, the, the, the disciple, tells us in his account that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we talked about this the last couple of weeks, that Jesus raised this guy by the name of Lazarus, who was pretty well known, back from the dead. And it freaked everybody out, of course. He had been dead, not just kind of, he was dead dead. He had been dead for several days and was in the tomb. I mean, his body probably stank. It was just crazy and he raised him from the dead and Bethany which is where that happened just over the hill from Jerusalem became a tourist attraction everybody came to get a glimpse of this dead man walking and, and buy a t-shirt I saw him he's alive you know whatever and so uh, but after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that was it the chief priests and the religious leaders and the Pharisees John says gave orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him but they were smart about it they were wise. They were like, hey, don't, we're not going to do this. We're not going to arrest him during the festival or the city may riot. People may riot. And so they were like, Jesus has got to be near the city. They've heard rumors that he's in and out of the city. And they're like, if anyone sees this guy, put a tail on him. We're going to follow him and then we're going to wait. And right after the Passover, we're going to arrest him and then we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him dead. And then finally things can get back to normal, which is what they wanted. Um, the text tells us that over the next few days before the Passover, rumors were flying throughout the city that Jesus was, in fact, about to come into Jerusalem soon. And so there was a buzz in the city. There was electricity. There was energy in the air. People were thinking this. People were like, is this it? I mean, this Jesus, he's the one, right? This guy, perhaps he's going to do, just as Moses delivered our people out of Egypt during the first Passover, maybe this Passover, Jesus is going to declare himself king and deliver us from Rome. That's what everybody was thinking. And so Rome and Pilate, who was in charge uh, of that through Rome, they were cautious. They were kind of watching things. Uh, the Jews were anxious. They were like, man, this Jesus is something like we've never seen before. We think he might be the Messiah, but he doesn't do everything that we thought the Messiah would do. Um, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are incredibly nervous because they're afraid. And everyone is on the lookout for uh, Jesus. And suddenly Jesus is spotted up on the Mount of Olives. I've been there in Israel. There's the temple. You look down the Kidron Valley and then across the way is the Mount of Olives. And there's some hubbub. There's some excitement. There's some people coming over the hill on that day. And, and it's apparent that Jesus is coming into the city. And word spreads quickly. Verse 12, it says this, that the huge crowds that had come for the Passover festival heard that Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem. And in verse 13, it says that everyone went out and cut down palm branches. They took palm branches and they went out to greet him, shouting what? Hosanna, you all know that. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is interesting. This is strange because Hosanna means um, save us now. Save us now, as he walked in. The, save us, save us now. Now, Hosanna was an ancient cry, an ancient prayer that the nation of Israel would call out and pray to God during difficult times, during troubled times. And, and so uh, this is strange, though. They're now focusing this prayer not to God, but to a man, a person, a dude from Nazarene, a Nazarene, a Nazareth, a, a Nazarene riding on the, get this, on the back of a little donkey. Coming into, it was just a strange, strange thing. And so as Jesus enters the city, though, the shouts change. They escalate from, save us now, save us now. And they go to verse 13, it says, blessed, blessed is he who is coming in the name of God. 
That just went to another level. Blessed is he who comes in the name of God. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now this thing, it is clear, this has turned political right now, right? And uh, everyone was convinced that Jesus had come to do something for the nation of Israel. But the truth is, is that Jesus had actually come to do something for the world. For you and I. For all of us. And so, over the next few days, unbeknownst to the Jews, Jesus is going to do something so amazing that people wouldn't fully understand it until after it happened. Um, over the next few days, don't miss this, Jesus would replace God's covenant, God's deal, God's contract with the nation of Israel. He would replace it. But more importantly, uh, Jesus would fulfill an ancient promise that God had made to Father Abraham. Abraham, 2,000 years before this, before this Passover, um, God came to this fellow by the name of Abraham. And Abraham had one thing that he wanted. Abraham wanted what? A son. He was an old man. He had no heirs. And he, and he knew he was going to die soon. He's like, I just want a son. And God came to him and God gave him three promises. He said, number one, I'm going to give you a son, boy. I'm going to give you a son. And then number two, he says, but I want you to know, this son one day is going to become a great nation. And, 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 and Abraham's like, I didn't ask for that. And he's like, no, no, I'm giving it to you. As, look into, into the sky, as many stars as you see, that's how big your family is going to become. You ask for one, I'm giving you this. This is the kind of God we serve. And then he said this. He said, but not only that, he said, through that nation, I am going to bless the entire world. I'm going to bless all nations. This isn't just something between us. This is for all of the nations, the whole world. And Jesus was about to fulfill that promise. I mean, this thing had been hanging out there for 2,000 years. Every Jewish child grew up hearing stories about Father Abraham and hearing promises that God was going to bless them and make a great nation and that he was going to bless the world. And all these Jews, all they, they never saw that. They're like, where's the blessings? They're down in slavery, down in Egypt. And they're like, we're going to bless the world? The world doesn't even care about us. And this thing just hung out there for 2,000 years. And now Jesus is about to fulfill that promise. And he's about to replace God's covenant with Israel that God made at Mount Sinai right after that first Passover. And so, over the next few days, uh, Jesus would come in and out of the temple kind of secretly. Um, he, he wasn't doing any miracles. He was kind of doing just a little bit of teaching just here and there. But mostly he was keeping a low profile because he wasn't ready. And then, check this out. Two days before the Passover, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, finally get their prayers answered. The miracle they've been looking for finally happens. One of Jesus' followers goes rogue, turns against him. It says this in Luke chapter 22, verse 4. It says, And Judas then went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard, and he discussed with them how he may betray Jesus. And the religious leaders, it says this, that they were delighted. They were delighted. You know why they're delighted? Because they were afraid. They were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid that if Jesus, get this, they were afraid that if Jesus was declared king, that he would take everything from them that they held near and dear. He would take their power, their authority, their prestige, all the stuff that they had. He would take that from them. And, uh, and I thought about that this week. Maybe that's why some of you are afraid to make Jesus your king. Because you're afraid that he's going to come and take everything away from you. But this is a misperception. This is a common misperception. Jesus didn't come to take. He came to give. He came to give. Right. 
And so the Passover and, 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 and the religious leaders, it says this, on the religious leader, the religious leaders agreed to give Judas on the Passover what he, uh, uh, some money, and he agreed to walk, look for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when there was no crowd present. And so I just want to set the stage here. The battle lines are drawn. Okay, it is on like Donkey Kong, right? You got, you got the kingdoms of this world, and they're going to wage war against the kingdom of God. You got the kingdoms of this world with their violent, top-down ways, right? Waging war against a peaceful, upside-down kingdom of God, right? And the kingdoms of this world would succeed in their, in their plan, they wanted to kill Jesus, and they would succeed, but um, they would ultimately fail. Their objective would ultimately fail because, um, unlike them, Jesus didn't cling to life. He held it loosely. His goal from the beginning was to give his life away. That was what he wanted. But before he did that, and we're going to look at that in a couple weeks, Jesus had a couple of loose ends that he wanted to tie up um, before all that happened um, with his disciples. Um, and so, the Passover and this Passover meal was a perfect opportunity to clarify some things. And so on the morning of the Passover, Jesus sent a couple of his friends in the city to go find a place to meet. Um, Jesus wanted a place that was a little out of the way, off the beaten path, where he wouldn't be arrested or he wouldn't be interrupted because he had one very important conversation that he wanted to have with his disciples. And so they're sitting there and they're eating the meal. And as the meal begins, Jesus once again says something that blows these guys' minds. In Matthew chapter 26, it says this. That while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. You know, the Passover meal, they said God gave very specific instructions about what to eat. It was supposed to be unleavened bread. Jesus took the unleavened bread and he broke it. And when he gave thanks for it, he broke it. And he gave pieces to the disciples. And he says, take and eat this. For this is my body. And, 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 and in fact, it's interesting. Luke's version says, this is my body given for you. And I, and I promise you, before the disciples take a bite of it, they're kind of looking at each other out of the corner of their eye because they're confused. They're like, what did he just say? We're to eat Jesus' body, his flesh. This is weird, right? And then in verse 19, Jesus goes deeper. He says this. He says, guys, I want you, get this, I want you to do this in remembrance of, and before he kind of finishes it, instantly in their heads they're like, Jesus, we know what this is in remembrance of. We, we know what this is about. Ever since we were Jewish little boys, every year we would celebrate the Passover with our family. We know, and every year at the Passover we remember what God did for our ancestors, what God did and how God delivered our great-grandfathers and our great-grandmothers from Egypt from slavery under Pharaoh. Jesus, we know exactly what we're remembering here. You don't have to tell us. But Jesus smiles and he says, um, that's all changing, guys. Something new is happening. And then he says this. He says, from now on, when you guys celebrate Passover, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember me. And he got the same reaction. They're like, what? I'm telling you, we as Gentiles don't understand how crazy this was and how offensive that statement was that he just made. I mean, everybody should have gotten up and left. Right there. They, they should have just said, that's it. We're out. This meeting's over, right? I mean, the disciples had to be sitting there going, Jesus, this is too much. 
You've gone too far, man. You're going too far with this thing. You've been contradicting Moses at every turn. You've been dissing our temple all the time. Every now and then you're dissing the temple. And, 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 and we've been tolerating all of that. But Jesus, don't mess with the Passover, man. This is our Passover. This is our holiday. We love this one. You can't make the Passover about you. It's not always about you, Jesus. It's not about you. The Passover is not about you. Who do you think you are? We're out of here. <laughs> this is crazy, right? And, 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 and again, we don't understand this, but here's, I thought of a way to illustrate it to you. Let's imagine this December, y'all come to church on Christmas Eve, and I get up in front, and I go, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Uh, normally on Christmas Eve, we would be celebrating the birth of Jesus. But tonight, we're going to celebrate my birthday. <laughs> Okay, we're going we're gonna to celebrate mine. And, and, and so in a few minutes, we're going to sing some songs about me. We're going to light some candles in honor of me because this Christmas, it's about me. And tomorrow, when you wake up, I want you to get together with your families. I want you to have a big old meal. And at that meal, I want you guys to talk about how great Pastor Troy is. Okay, because Christmas from now on is about me. You would leave this church, wouldn't you? You would just get up and walk out. And you should. You're like, Pastor Troy's lost it. He's gone nuts, man. This whole thing has gone off the rail. Get out of there. Go. This is my point. What Jesus did was way worse than that. Um, it was way more disruptive and disrespectful for that. But he wasn't done. <laughs> he was going deeper. Um, I'm telling you, the text indicates that the disciples just kind of ate their meal in silence. They're just kind of like, this is so awkward. <laughs> And in verse 20, it says this, that in the same way, just like he did at the beginning of the meal, after the supper, Jesus then picked up the cup, and he says, guys, um, this cup, this cup is, and before he says it, again, the disciples are like, Jesus, we know what the cup is. We know what the cup represents. The cup represents the blood of the lamb that our ancestors slayed on the night of the Passover. They took a lamb and they slayed that lamb and they took his blood and they painted their doorpost with the blood. Why? Because we know the story. Because that night the death angel was going to go over Egypt and any house that had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, the, angel would, the death angel would pass over. Jesus, we know what the cup represents. Jesus, we get it. Stick to the script. Don't change the story. We know the story. It's 1,500 years old. We've been celebrating this for 1,500 years. You don't get to change it. Don't mess with Passover, okay? That's what they're thinking. Because the Passover cup had always represented the covenant, the deal, the contract that God made with the nation of Israel. But again, don't forget, Jesus was introducing something new, right? And so he says this. He says, this cup is the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant covenant now again the disciples were confused they're shocked they're like new covenant what's wrong with the old one why are we doing this new one where did this come from well if these guys had just paid attention when they were little boys in Sunday school or Jewish Saturday school whatever it is if they had just paid attention they might have remembered that the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that one day God was going to bring or establish a new covenant that would replace the current covenant. In fact, check this out. 650 years before um, 
they were having this Passover, Jeremiah wrote these words. Jeremiah 31, 31, speaking for God. He said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Verse 32, he goes on. He says, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. He's referring to the covenant that Moses came down with at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments that were written on stone. And those Ten Commandments turned into 600 laws, you know, that just were so permeating and all these rules and regulations. And Jeremiah is saying that the new covenant would be different from the old. And so you might go, well, how would it be different? Well, one way, God says this in verse 33, he says, here's what's going to be different. Get this, I'm going to put the law in their hearts and in their minds. I'm going to write the law on their minds and write it on their hearts. Instead of writing it on rocks, in case they forget, so that they will remember, I'm going to write it on their hearts so that it will go with them everywhere. They won't have to remember anything. They'll know what to do in any situation. It will guide them. This law, this new thing, will guide them and know the right from wrong. It will be a covenant of conscience and not compliance. It'll be a covenant that is governed by what's going on and you, you know the difference between right and wrong rather than just compliance. Oh, the rules say I better do this, so I better do it. I don't know why, but okay, God. It's going to be a different covenant. And so think about that. I want you to hold that for a second. Go back to the Passover with Jesus when he says this cup is a new covenant. Now the disciples had to be wondering what kind of covenant is this going to be? Um, Because they had seen several covenants in their history. uh, Scholars tell us that there are basically three kinds of covenants in ancient times. The first one is this. It was a, there's a bilateral parity covenant. And I just lost all of you. Wah, 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 wah. I know these are big words even for a guy from Craig, Colorado. I'm telling you. But but listen to me. Pay attention to this. This will pay off. The first one was a bilateral parity covenant. A bilateral meaning two parties. Parity meaning equal. Covenant meaning contract. Um, when we look at this kind of one, it's kind of like a business agreement or a business contract where two people, two equals, enter into an agreement that they will do something for each other. That contract will say this, I will do this for you if you do that for me. That's our agreement, okay? We're equals, we're both putting something into this, we both have skin in the game, but if you don't do that, I'm not doing this. That's the contract is over. That's a bilateral parity contract. That's a business agreement. The second kind of covenant that they saw was a bilateral Susan Tree covenant. A Susan Tree covenant. This is a covenant between non-equals. Suzerain means king or ruler. And kings back then would make agreements and covenants and they would dictate the terms and the conditions of those covenants to the lesser power or to their vassals, their subjects, right? And, and, and the lesser power doesn't really have much say in it. They don't have much choice in the matter. They can participate or, or not participate if they didn't want to. And the best way to, to understand that one would be to think of a curfew that you put on your kids. How many of you are, have had children? Raise your hand. And at some point, did you all put a curfew? Raise your hand on your kid, right? This is what would happen. If you're, you have kids, you would put a curfew. And you would dictate the terms of the curfew. You would say, hey, listen, uh, you want to use my car tonight? Yes, Father. Okay, well, here's my keys. But listen, you will be home tonight at 10 p.m. 
What time did I say? 10 what time? 10 exactly. 10 p.m. Not 10.05. Not 10.10. Not 10.30. If you show up past 10 o'clock, listen, you're not getting these keys again for a while, and I'm going to lower that, that curfew to 9.30 or 9 o'clock. Do you understand? And, of course, you would dictate the terms, and your vassal or your child would go, Oh, thank you, most benevolent father. Or mother, thank you for this. I will obey your rules because I don't make the rules. I just follow him. Follow them, right? That's how it, that's how it sounds at my house. I don't know how you guys run your kids, but uh, no. My point is this. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. you got to think. This is the kind of covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai, and he said, here's the rules. <laughs> and if you follow my rules, my blessings will follow you. <laughs> you can use my car. If, however, you don't follow my rules, you're going to lose your privileges. You're going to lose the blessings, and I'm going to take the keys away. And as every one of you know who have ever read Deuteronomy or Leviticus, God gave them a boatload of rules and regulations and stipulations and punishments if they didn't follow those rules and regulations. And we've all wondered, why is God so under the rules? Because at this time in history, God was wanting to develop a nation. He was wanting to develop an orderly society that was built on respect and, and that was built on goodness. And he wanted to raise up a nation that would follow him and trust him. And he, so he said, listen, I know all my rules don't make sense to you. But if you will obey me and follow my rules and not follow after other gods and not do what everyone else is doing, I promise I will protect you. And I'll protect your crops. And I'll protect you from other nations. But <laughs> if you don't follow my rules, um, I'm not going to protect you. I'll take my hands off of you. Uh, I'll let you go in your own way and do your own thing. Your crops might fail. And other nations are probably going to come in and they're going to defeat you. And anybody who has ever read the history of Israel knows exactly that how it's played out. There's this roller coaster. At first, they would follow him and trust him, and they would do what he said. And then little by little, they would blow him off and go, I'm going to do what I want to do. And then trouble would come. They would be taken into captivity. They would be attacked. And so then they would turn back. Oh, God, we're sorry. We're coming back. We're going to follow you. Whatever you say, we're going to do it. And they would follow him, and they'd trust him. And then little by little, they'd start to blow him off and do their own thing. And then again, every time they went that way, they became attacked and overtaken by other nations. But the terms of the covenant were clear. I am your king. You are my subjects. If you obey me and my rules, you'll be blessed. If you won't, you'll suffer the consequences of your choices. Now, there's a third kind of covenant. And uh, this would be called, and it's again, big name, but get this, don't miss this. It's a unilateral promissory covenant. Unilateral. This wasn't bilateral. Bilateral is between two parties that are both invested in it. This is unilateral. This is one-sided. In other words, only one party is making a promise to the other. One party is obligating, get this, one party is obligating itself to the benefit of the other without any conditions. It would be unconditional. I'm doing this whether you do whatever you do or don't do. I don't care. I'm going to do this. It wasn't I will if you will. It was I, it's I will regardless of what you do. I'm going to do it. And the best way to uh, maybe think about this is, is to think about a middle school crush 
that you might have had. Does anybody remember being in love in middle school? Like every other day? <laughs> Falling in love? And in middle school, maybe you were handed a note. Mr. Cuevas, you see these notes, you pick these notes up all the time. Someone hands you a note. Or maybe you write a note to them. And the note says this. I promise to love you forever. It doesn't matter if you move away to Denver or if you love someone else. I promise I will love you for always and forever. You ever get one of those notes? Me neither. Um, but I wrote a lot of them. <laughs> I wrote a lot of them, and they were always unconditional. And they were always one-sided. They never came back to me. No one ever, ever wrote one back. But here's the thing that's fortunate for all of us. Uh, fortunately for us, you didn't have to ratify or confirm that promise by sacrificing your neighbor's cat. Some of you are like, what? This just went weird. Well, this is true. In ancient covenants, it was common practice to ratify or fulfill a promise by sacrificing an animal. Two parties would enter into an agreement, and they both would bring an animal to that, that deal, and they'd come out in the middle of a field, and they'd meet there, and whatever they were agreeing on, they would both sacrifice their animal. Generally, if you were very wealthy, it would be a bull, a big cow, and they would sacrifice this cow, and they'd arrange the pieces on one side and the pieces on the other, and then they both, check this out, would walk through the middle of this bloody mess, and then they would stand in the middle of it, and they would say, may this happen to me if I don't do what I said I will do. May this be what I look like at the end of this thing if I don't live up to my word, if I'm not faithful to my word. And so you have probably heard the expression, um, we cut a deal, right? Well, that comes from this idea, we cut a covenant. And we pledged our lives to fulfill our side of the deal. But here's the thing. If someone made a promissory covenant, a unilateral promissory covenant, only one person would make the sacrifice. And only one person would walk through the mess. Why? Because it was all on them. It wasn't a mutual thing. It's all on me. And here's a little piece of fascinating biblical trivia. I bet you didn't know this. But when God made his promise to Abraham that he would bless the world, this covenant he made, I'm going to bless the world, um, some bulls were cut in half. And they were arranged. But here's the interesting thing. Abraham didn't walk through the middle of that. Abraham didn't go through it. He just sat there. And instead, the Bible says that he saw a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass through the middle of that bloody mess. Which was symbolic of God walking through it by himself. And God saying, Abraham, this is a one-sided deal here. Regardless of what you do or you don't do, I'm going to do what I told you I'm going to do. I'm going to fulfill this promise someday. I'm going to do this. In other words, it's all on me. So again, go back to the Passover meal that Jesus is having with his disciples. When Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant, the disciples would have asked this question. What kind of covenant would this be? Would it be the first kind, the second kind, or the third kind? And Jesus answers the question when he says this. He said this. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which will be for you. I'm paying for it. It's on me, but it's for you. I'm gonna, we're not going to have a bull. I'm going to be the sacrifice. 
that will ratify this covenant, will will fulfill this covenant and this contract. And I'm going to walk through and become a bloody mess because I want you to know it's on me. I'm not asking you to cut anything. It's going to be on me. This new covenant is totally and completely one-sided. It's on me, but it's for you, right? I'm the giver, and you're the receiver. You don't have to do anything. It's 100% on me, but it's 100% for you. The benefits of this is 100% for you. It's funny. Um, Matthew's version goes a little bit deeper than this. It says that Jesus said a few more words when he said this. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, in my blood, which will be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And when the disciples heard that, I bet they went, oh, oh. They would have went back to the beginning where we started. Down at the Jordan River, John the Baptist is standing in the Jordan River. He's baptizing people. He looks up and he sees Jesus walking down and he introduces Jesus to the world by saying these words. Look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the whole world. Wow. Now, I'm telling you, by this time, the disciples are confused. They're discombobulated. They're like, Jesus, this is too much. My head hurts. This is, this is happening so fast. It's going so fast. I mean, I, let me just make sure that we got this. Jesus, um, let's see if we get this straight. First of all, you tell us that we're no longer supposed to remember the Passover as when God freed us from Egypt. Instead, from now on, when we do Passover, we're to remember you. And we're to remember that you established a new covenant A covenant that Jeremiah prophesied 650 years ago. (laughs) Okay. And this new covenant that you're bringing will be different from the old covenant. Because unlike the old, which was written on stone and was a bilateral two-party covenant that was made between a king and a nation. This new covenant is going to be written on our hearts. And it's going to be a totally one-sided deal, right? Between you and the whole world. In which you're going to be the sacrificial lamb. And you're going to be the sacrifice. And your blood is going to ratify the fact that our sins are forgiven. That we don't have to come to the temple anymore and kill some innocent baby lamb every year. That our sins are just forgiven. And that your love and your protection for us will now totally be unlimited and unconditional. Really? Really, Jesus? What's the catch? What's the catch? Seriously. Because uh, this sounds way too good to be true. But truth be told, it was a better covenant. It was a better covenant because it wasn't national. It would be now personal. It wasn't with a, a nation. It was with individuals. And not only that, it wasn't temporary. It didn't have an expiration date on it. It was eternal. And it wasn't physical. It wasn't outward. It wasn't about how you dress or how you wash or how you acted. It was inward. It was spiritual. And it wasn't just for the insiders and the church and the religious people and the perfect ones. This covenant would be for everyone, the outsiders, those who weren't on the inside, those who felt on the outside. It wasn't I will if you will. (laughs) 
It was, I will even if you won't. It wasn't uh, spelled D-O. It was spelled D-O-N-E. It was done by him for us. And best of all, it was unlimited and unconditional. And as unbelievable as that sounded, the disciples were having to think, golly, man, how do we get to be a part of that deal? Where do we sign up for that? What do we got to do here? Because that is the best deal we've ever heard about. And if we asked one of those disciples later on, a guy by the name of John, John watched Jesus die on the cross. He was with Jesus' mother, and he watched Jesus take his last breath, and he saw him die. And then three days later, he went to where they buried him, and the tomb was empty. And then he saw the resurrected Christ. He saw this bloody mess alive again. And John, if he could talk to us, he would say this. He said, you want to be a part of this deal? It's so simple. It's so simple. He would say, whoever believes in him, believes what about him? What do you, what, believes what? What do we got to believe? Whoever believes that Jesus cut this one-sided deal for you shall not perish but have everlasting life. Wow. The new was coming, and it was so much better than you and I could ever imagine. Amen? Amen. I hope you meditate on that this week, especially those of you who have been raised in church where it's been about do, 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 and maybe you get in. Jesus didn't come to bring that. It's done. We can rest in that. He did it for us. What a deal.